Okay, so this is a, a classic 1930s detective story set up, except instead of a gun, he has a gun that shoots sleeping gas. And a terrible catchphrase. Um, <laughs> a few things in the first story. I actually really liked the first story. It kind of felt like a Ellery Queen story. That's definitely like they're from the same time period. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a couple interesting things to note. One, she could not have been going to Harlem nightclubs, at least the way she was describing it, the daughter of the district attorney, because New York City's cabaret laws were specifically written to avoid interracial mixing. Huh. Somebody didn't do their homework. And uh, there's an express reference to the lullaby lullaby of Broadway in the first few pages. I'm like, oh, good, that's that's nice. Um, they mentioned the little foxes at the end, which is sort of interesting. They're going to go see it as a play because Lillian Helmland was like the longtime companion of Dashiell Hammett, who wrote The Thin Man. And you know, the first arc is all about like horribly screwed up, evil, incestuous, rich people, and that's kind of the plot of the story. So, eh. huh? This is nice. this is awesome. This is awesome does, that you know this shit because I don't know any of this. And like, I just want to say this is as well researched as the, the three stories are. They're all downhill from here. At one point, they get the location of McSorley's wrong, and it got me very angry. <laughs> this is Ugh. I'm I'm living for this. I love a good like expert on a time period. Welcome to history chat. <laughs> <laughs> this one is uh, called this... that outfit was not in fashion in 1988. <laughs> Uh, th this is our version of those, like, uh, historian watches historical movie and uh, points out all the things they got wrong. Uh, I People malign that genre of YouTube video a little bit too much for my liking. I, I think it can be really good when the historical expert is, you know, having a fun time with it. Like, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson can be a little bit too hectoring and also too much of a sexual predator. But, like, when, when you get someone who is like, yeah, I, I know it's going to be, you know, obviously it's a movie, it's going to be inaccurate. This is just a fun way to, like, you know, dispense some fun facts and some fun anecdotes about my time working in this industry. There's some there's some really good ones of, like, like elderly Old West aficionados who, like, critique Red Dead Redemption, too. Like, <laughs> and apparently, like, it's... To a certain degree, up to code, like it's it, it it's relatively good. My that's that's my favorite is like old Western gun experts critiquing the guns of that game. That those are good ass videos. Ah, uh, all right. And speaking of critique, this podcast is recommended for mature listeners. It may contain descriptions of violence, thematic content, and immature language. Listener discretion is advised. Podcast is mature listeners with Neil Chagabi and Shane Levi. Enjoy. Welcome to Mature Listeners, the only podcast that is an elegy for the Vertigo Comics line. I'm Neil, here with Shane, and we've got a guest with us today. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey there, I'm John Levitt, an artist author and activist and i've actually worked for dc and marvel a few times nice huh. okay uh would you like to go into detail in uh, what capacity you worked with them yeah um i was a writer i've pitched a few one shots i worked with molly crabapple for strange tales volume one and i had a limited run series on the now gone zuda imprint wow okay I've been involved in um, three distinct comic, like, standalone 
graphic novels that have been canceled before I finish. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm oh. sorry for laughing. That is the, just the way you, you phrase that's very funny. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you're also a, a historical aficionado, which is part of why we brought you in to talk about the first 12 issues of Sandman Mystery Theater. And me just shouting Dusseldorf's don't work that way. What is a Dusseldorf, and why don't they work that way? It's those, like, uh, round... The Batmobile. Batmobile is basically a modified Dusseldorf type of German, pre-war German car that was very sleek and very fancy and handled like a shopping cart and couldn't go over 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so are you saying that those could not uh, drop, like, four spiked hubcaps in a police chase? Well, it probably had enough extra room in the back for it. Those things are built like a tank. So, like... In reality, would that police chase have just been pathetic looking? Just oh, yeah, like... that would have been like... <laughs> so just like a parade, essentially. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I have, I have some thoughts about it. it. It does sort of strike the genre pretty well, like as a recreation, although some of the scripts do feel like it just like added some uh, sexual assault to a Batman the Animated Series comic. Yeah, I got very yeah. strong... Uh, the animated series, like, feelings, but also, like, edgelord, kind of, you know? Yeah, this, this comic is trying really hard to make sure that you know that it's for mature readers. We know that because we do cussing and murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um... I, I'm not a huge fan of, like, grim and gritty as, like, a descriptor, because the problem is not that it is dark or grim, it's that it's bad at it. It, it it's that it does not handle these themes well. It's also that it offers nothing else besides it, because, like, good Hellblazer, like, the grim and the darkness is nowhere near, like, the top five of things that it offers. But for this, this is, at points, the only thing that it brings to the table. It seems like a real tonal mismatch with a series that is essentially guy in a bow tie solving mysteries with his stun gun yes yeah it, it, I, I just it's kept like, like if in the middle of an episode of pushing daisies they threw in a twist about child molestation like just completely off tone yeah if hannibal but worse <laughs> uh, and uh i didn't have like too many thoughts about it because the comic itself doesn't have too many thoughts in its head um, I really don't know why, like, when we're, we're, we go back to this era, which has, like, all of the crazy Orientalism, we feel the need to recreate it. We can just not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and the way that this tries to do that, especially, uh, we'll probably get to that when we cover that specific four-issue section. It's, it, it's very odd because it's trying to, you know, criticize the racism of the day, but it is also very much playing up the, the tropes of the era and so it is it it's sort of crossing itself it's tripping over its own feet yeah exactly uh, it's like they're trying to go like oh but that that's just how asians were depicted in media of the time then it's like yeah you don't have to do that you can draw them with normal faces <laughs> it it looks like an anti-japanese ad honestly exactly yeah which is particularly bad because this is a a bit about Chinatown, so it's, it's not even correctly racist. It reminded me of those old, like, you ever see, like, the Dr. Seuss, like, uh, propaganda, like, anti-Japanese propaganda of the time? Oh, God, yeah. It reminded me of that. Oof. 
I just thought I might drop that for uh, the you know everybody. Oh, that looks for like the that context that fucking, of our listeners. That looks like Shane just dropped a uh, face apt picture of Larry King, and I agree, it looks exactly like Wesley Dodds. That is that's that's our Wes. Uh, so yeah. let's sort of give uh, an overview and summary of the comic in question, uh, starting with the the first arc. The, these first three arcs are all sort of monster of the week stories. The first one being the tarantula. Mm-hmm. So uh, Wesley Dodds um, goes one on one against Spider Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been uh, sitting on that joke for a, like a solid two weeks now. Oh, jeez. Now you're just reminding me that we have to do an episode on Transmetropolitan next. Listen, and we don't... we're going to have to handle the news that has come out recently. Oh, good, good. We can... <laughs> we get to go into it. Oh, God. Oh, we get... that... oh. There is no way we're going to be able to avoid that, and we would not want to. No. But um, it's going to be a hard... Feelings... It's going to be a hard field. Oh, it's... It doesn't... It didn't feel good to have all of my negative feelings about Warren Ellis be um, vindicated at once. Didn't feel good, man. But anyway, the tarantula. Yes, um, the the tarantula. He uh, he likes to kidnap um, young, rich uh, New York starlets. You know. Yeah, and you remember if you've ever read like the first Batman story. Uh, part of it is like you know Commissioner Gordon telling Bruce Wayne a story. And then at the end, you see Bruce Wayne being like, oh, I wouldn't want to run into that Batman. <laughs> uh, a lot of this is like that because it knows you know that Wesley Dodds is the Sandman, but it doesn't want to say it outright. So it just sort of, it, you know, it, it winks at it. Yeah, it it doesn't land. It, it honestly does not land. It, it, it is doing a lot of Batman stuff, particularly like that period of Batman, because a lot of like the more over the top aspects of batmanery were invented for the 1940s serials like the bat car and alfred actually invented for the serials um kind of the actual comic like yeah he's like if batman was like a really super silliest prig <laughs> also like kind he's of a fancy like, lad yeah he's like if the sand if uh, the shadow was a nerd yeah he's a he's he's a classic weenie i feel like um it's one of those weenies that goes to the gym a lot. Yes. About it. <laughs> he goes to the gym, but he wears one of those like 1910s like workout outfits and just kind of picks up a medicine ball and puts it down. But in, in 1938, main... that would have made him cool. <laughs> yeah. His two main hobbies are exercising and having nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> and, and pointedly reminding people he doesn't drink. Oh, God. Yeah. I got. Okay, so I don't. I don't even this this word is not a part of my language usually, but like for some reason it popped into my brain. There's a part where like he's invited up for a drink and he's like, "Well, I'm not interested in that unless you have lemonade." And I just thought the first thought I thought was just douche chill, just like yeah. awful, like oh god, like every like just my fingers turned into knives. I just did not want that man near me. <laughs> Uh, he he's like the CM Punk of the 1930s. No, nowhere near. Nowhere. He's like my addiction um, is crime fighting. 
No, actually, my addiction is having nightmares and talking to a little doll of myself that I tuck into bed every night. He's like to reread those scenes because I did not understand what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I for for a while I thought, oh, is this like a magic thing? Like he doesn't have to sleep because this thing does his sleeping for him? But uh, no, no, he is shown sleeping at many points. It might just be that this little uh, toy gimmick he just tucks it into bed just to you know be nice to it. Sleeping really. In- really feels like has that sort of enzadrine smack of madness that only comes from like someone in 1935 working till 3 a.m. desperately trying to come up with a new idea before printing press. Mm. <laughs> it's like I have uh, drunken two bottles of whiskey and ha- and smoked eight packs of cigarettes. He has a doll run with it. <laughs> <laughs> or your olds read this shit. Just get it out. Uh, Another one of his many hobbies is reminding people that he spent a lot of time in, quote-unquote, the Orient as a teen. Uh, Incredibly racist music cue. Oh my god. He's even shown, like, meditating in his um, incredibly suspiciously Asian-themed bedroom. You know what? It's like like Denny O'Neill's The Question, but without any of the, like philosophical benefits no like he's just he's just doing it for the aesthetic (laughs) oh jesus but yes this uh what i would only call a dream cell he adventures around new york trying to hunt down this tarantula Mm -hmm. and the tarantula ends up being uh what's it called the uh son of a very rich um what does he do what's the guy like sorry to spoil but it's just the nature of our uh what is it the like, movie producer right the movie producer yeah that was him and the movie producer bootlegger, i think uh-huh yeah the movie producer and his like weird wife like who telegraphed the entire time that it's her like well, yeah it's also it's like it's like half of it is just the plot to the big sleep so if you've read or watched the big sleep you know what's going to happen Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and part of it is uh, the strange thing about the Johnsons, but <laughs> sort of gender swapped. Mm-hmm. And, uh, another like historical thing, I was thinking like I didn't know if this was supposed to be New York or not because I'm like movie producer, New York, 1938. Those guys all moved to Hollywood in like 20s. Mm-hmm. He was a television producer. That would make sense because New York City was the start of first TV. But this is too early for that. Anyway, sorry to be a radio producer. No, just understand. If he was a radio producer, that would make so much more sense. Just understand whenever you're talking about like 1930s history, just like imagine like the kid in the front row of like a of like a school, like a classroom, who's just got like his hands on his face and looking up to the teacher in awe. I just love hearing (laughs) about. I love hearing about history bullshit. So just please go off, King. Well, like, they all moved out to L.A. because, like, Edison was patent trolling them. Like, he tried to claim that he owned the patent for the reel, the thing that advanced the reel of tape in a movie camera. And they were like, well, the, he can't find us in California. That's too far away. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did know that because, like, that's a part, that's a big uh, piece of, like, New Jersey lore is that we almost were, like, like Hollywood. But, yeah, like, yeah, they were all, all in New Jersey. But, like, Edison was too much of a prick. Have you ever been so much of a prick that you scared an entire industry, like half, like literally entirely across a country from you? 
that's just a that's a wonderful time in like history when you could just run away like a legitimate strategy would be to pick up an entire industry and move it across the country with the idea of he can't get all of us they, they literally did the Patrick Starr thing. What if we just take the film industry and push it over there? <laughs> oh, kind of like, like when you read about like historical crime or even just like gangland murders. They're just like, unless you were caught caked in blood holding the gun, they probably weren't going to get caught. No, it's like that. Uh, <laughs> it's like that John Mulaney bit of like, oh, there's the victim's blood on the floor. Oh, that's gross. Get it out of here. <laughs> Like that sort of sense of lawlessness that came with um, prohibition and then uh, the depression is really what spurred the creation of the superhero genre in comic books because they were all like originally just masked Avengers who were beating up, yeah, like war profiteers, uh, people with too much money, gangsters. Mm-hmm. There's a real friendly neighborhood defender kind of feel. But because it was the 1930s and they were still obsessed with this idea of like gentleman X, you know, gentleman aviators, gentleman spies or whatever, like they always had to be insanely rich. Yes. The rich will save us somehow. Don't interpret this as any kind of capitalist indoctrination. <laughs> uh, I, my favorite thing about uh, Wesley Dodds is that he is just like, he, he, he's always got this excuse for whatever he has to do. It's like, oh, I, I'm taking care of my dad's old business stuff. That's why I can't be there tonight. And it's it's the dream of anyone who is very bad at, like, going to social events. Like, oh, I have a, a ready-made excuse. Uh, I, I can't be at that party. I've got to go take care of this very vaguely defined business thing where I'll actually be running across a rooftop in a gas mask. No, I can't stay tonight. I have to wash my very shitty thin hair. <laughs> You know what's better than making plans? Canceling them to to solve crime. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we mentioned that the tarantula loves kidnapping and torturing women. And there is a lot of, like, sexual violence. And this, as bad as it is about that, is the best of these three stories about that. This is like a coherent narrative that doesn't, where it doesn't seem, well, it's, it's unnecessary, but it doesn't seem like they're deliberately, like an editor is like, I'm sorry, I need at least two sexual assaults in every story. Gotta put it back in. It's about, it, it's, it's disturbing, but it's not insulting in the way that the sexual violence, especially in the third one, it's comes about off as, as. It's about as heavy as your average episode of like, like, uh, what is it, Criminal Minds? Yeah, like that. Yeah. Whereas the other Whereas, ones. Uh, there is a moment in the third one that i i said fuck you out loud at like 5 (laughs) a.m oh the the instant the daughter character showed up i went well yeah it's not going in a good direction that is upsetting as i had forgotten about that until i saw it and i was like oh no oh god yeah i remember this Uh, you know that uh you know that thing from the Oh Hello Broadway thing where they have the guy, you know, the old guy, oh, I'm feeling good. <coughs> and then he unfolds the handkerchief and there's a spot of blood. It's like that, but for sexual abuse, <laughs> yes. that that sort of like crass telegraphing of what is going to happen. It it just ugh, yes, it sucks, flames so. on the side of my face. The only redeeming feature of the third story is that because it's it's visually so poorly conveyed... 
And it again, it just looks like clip art. It's hard to tell where anyone is in in a relationship to anyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <sighs> but this first one, the tarantula, has Guy Davis art, and I have to say, I kind of love Guy Davis's approach here. It's very sort of it's sort of thin lined and sort of heavy hatched, and it has a, a cohesiveness to it that is just not there in the subsequent two arcs. It's a definite, it's like a definite deliberate choice. Um, it makes it look kind of, like I said, it kind of looks like a zine, but like now that I'm thinking about it, it does have like this sort of rough and mean look that sort of suits the material. Yeah. Like it looks cheap, which in, they're definitely going for this very lurid, pulpy vibe. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense that Guy Davis would be the person that Mike Mignola uh, picked to take the reins of Hellboy's art. Just looking at, you know, the approach he took here to the sort of pulp material. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think it's weird that he's trying to recreate, like, period illustration, but not period comic art. But, like, it's a choice. It's a definite, deliberate choice. Yeah. Uh, oh, and there's, of course, um, Dobbs's the introduction of Dobbs's spunky sidekick, Dion, who's the daughter Dion of the... Belmont, yeah. Belmont, who's the daughter of the Attorney General, and is always getting up to... Uh, she carries scripts. a whip and loves uh, picking up rotisserie chickens out of bricks. Oh. <laughs> was it worth it? Was it worth it? <laughs> you flung the train off the tracks in the ditch. Was it worth it? <laughs> for such, such a high risk for no reward, was it worth it? <laughs> oh. oh. Anyway. I have no idea what's going on. Neil, you can you want to describe what you just did. Uh, editor's note, the Belmont family is the uh, main family of characters in the Castlevania games, uh, in which one of the main activities is using a whip and taking rotisserie chicken out of places where rotisserie chickens should not be to regain health. Ah, uh, I see now. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming at any point. I, w- I wasn't going to do it. It was, lo- it was low for me. <laughs> low-hanging fruit. I-, I had to get it early. No, low-hanging fruit is what they call Cary Grant in the next arc. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. That was good. Oh. Uh, actually, not a historical mistake, because uh, only a few years prior, Cary Grant would have been living with uh, the designer Ori Kelly in New York. Mm-hmm. Oh. We did not know that until Ori Kelly died and his autobiography was found in a um, pillowcase. And he talks, he has an entire chapter called like My Life with Carrie. And it's just like, yeah, he was incredibly handsome. Guys and girls were always all over him. He used to get drunk and beat me a lot, but like he was really handsome. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. But yes, uh, Diane's father, the uh, police commissioner, is you know, on the trail of the Sandman. Who uh, loves to communicate using uh, poems, much like the tarantula does, in a tick that is kind of dropped right after this arc. Yeah, it's kind it's of like a... picked back up at the end of the third one. It's like they remembered it. Yeah, and then he just starts like talking to the police commissioner, just like, "Hey, I'm the Sandman. Here's some things you ought to know." <laughs> also leaves like origami around his. Victims and or crime scenes, because again, this is just Niles Crane fights crime. Yeah. <laughs> God, he's such an he's an old timey weeaboo. 
oh my god that was actually a thing that was a thing there was like these english aristocrats who gave themselves japanese names oh that was yeah i that's one of my favorite oh not like favorite because it sucked but favorite like interesting <laughs> is just like well, I mean, there, there's a phrase for it orientalism just like my favorite orientalism <laughs> yes is my favorite just like british people like 1890s british like aristocrats who like owned katanas and got like you know like like uh what is it the um katakanji like tattoos and stuff like that like that is the cool that is like the silliest dumbest funniest thing in the world to me you know, not to get too far afield, there's just there's not much to talk about with this comic, but the best example of that in American history, the Peacock Room. What is the Peacock Room? I'm so interested. <laughs> I'm excited. There was this guy who was like very into Japanese and Korean pottery. He wanted to be like very restrained and austere about it because he wanted like he really liked the minimalism, the aestheticism mm. Uh, those regions art forms which was coming into popularity around then and he asked a uh, whistler of whistler's mother's fame design a room to show off these uh pots for him and he thought whistler would do a very good job because he was also enamored of the style he was also like much more of a minimalist than most of his contemporaries so he commissions him to do the room he goes away comes back the room is this iridescent, lacquered, highly, like, peacock-themed visual chaos. It is insane. It looks like the set for, like, 101 Arabian Nights. You can't even see the pottery in it because there's just so much stuff on the walls. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. I'm go I cannot wait to look this up. Uh, no, it's... It's what, currently in a museum in the mall right now. And like he he refused to pay Whistler, and Whistler was incredibly litigious. This apparently like led to some like <laughs> ten year long legal battle that destroyed Whistler's finances because he wouldn't let it go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. This is a guy who once This is a guy who once sued someone for non payment because they paid him in pounds, not guineas. <laughs> Guineas are what you pay gentlemen, and pounds are what you pay laborers. Oh my god! Wow, I love, I love decadent dandies. I love like just real fluffy, kind of like hoity-toity, turn of the century, eighteen hundreds, just shitheads. That is my favorite. <laughs> I love them. I'm saying, like, if they really just leaned into that, with dogs, no, they don't. Like, that could be a very entertaining series. They don't at all, though. That sucks. He's so boring he's so like hey shane like, what have you seen mr turner what is mr turner i'm i'm blanking that is the mike lee film about jmw turner starring timothy spall uh yes i feel like i've heard of it yes i've not i, seen I think it. you would really enjoy that is that exactly what i'm describing um somewhat there are mm. certainly scenes set in like the art society of the time yeah that's yeah that's my dream i love that stuff um i read a uh, portrait of dorian gray at a very impressionable age as like a young teenager <laughs> and that type of person just really just if you can just imagine somebody on a fainting couch on a hot summer british afternoon that is that's my dream that's what i want now be. i'm imagining that gundam meme but with you saying wow cool couch <laughs> 
I mean, to tie it back to comics, I'm always surprised no one's attempted to develop a Lucifer Box TV show or like movie property. Because it's basically what if James Bond lived in the 1890s and was gay? Basically Oscar Wilde. Huh. Yeah. Um, that was the comic book. I don't know why that's not, never been touched. Weird. I, I'm now learning about this book and now I want to read it. There are only um, two books. One is set in the 1890s and only has some mild transphobia, which is, you know, good for a book that came out in 1990. And then the second one takes place when he's like... kind. <laughs> Warning, may contain traces of. Uh, and the <laughs> second one takes place when he's like in his 60s and it's Britain during the Cold War. My, uh, I hate when I accidentally get the packets of blazon transphobia. <laughs> oh my god. It really burns. Diablo transphobia. <laughs> oh god. Um, I wish nothing... white people thought transphobia too spicy. <laughs> um, so, like, not to continue on this trail, but I just thought of one of my favorite quotes of all time. And Oscar Wilde's a complicated character. Um, to have, I, I could have a very real discourse about him, but there's just one quote of his that I really love. Uh, famously, what will end up, you know, ruining his life is that he um, was in a uh, very close relationship with a young man who um, was the son of the inventor of Queensberry boxing style. Um, and when his father came to confront him one time, like, and came to, like, beat the shit out of him, Oscar Wilde said, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, um, I don't know about Queensberry style, but Oscar Wilde set style means to shoot on sight, and he pulls out a comically large <laughs> gun on him. He was the first Austin 316. Yes. Wait, no, no. It, it was more when Austin 316 meets Pillman 9mm Glock. That's what that was. Yes. Uh, it's the it's the scene in uh, Indiana Jones when the guy is doing all like the sword tricks and Indiana Jones just shoots him, <laughs> and that that quote would be so much funnier if like the result of that moment didn't like kill him essentially, like slowly and sadly over the course of like ten years. Well, I mean, also you know the reason why they have the scimitar whip gun scene in Indiana Jones, right? Oh yeah, because he had the shits. <laughs> He was he, hitting out his doo-doo ass. Yeah, he had to poop. He didn't want to fight, do a big fight scene, so he went up to Spielberg and was just like, can we just, can I, can I just shoot him? <laughs> and he's like, how all of Harrison Ford's acting choices seem to derive by how much time he wants to spend on set? Yeah. And thank God for it. All of, he, those, okay, Indiana Jones and Star Wars would not have launched anywhere near as much as they did if in, if Harrison Ford had a work ethic. <laughs> if Harrison Ford was a team player, those movies would not be as cool. Uh, fun fact, Harrison Ford recorded the voiceover for Blade Runner while he was having diarrhea. Is that true? No. Oh, God damn it! I thought you, like, had IMDb up. <laughs> it would be funny if, if all of his major choices were, in fact, diarrhea-related. Oh, yes, of course. Not even laziness or just, just purely diarrhea-based. Just he just loves those really cheap rice bowls. He can't help himself. Uh, Harrison Ford's Harrison Ford Crohn's disease uh, pride flag. <laughs> Harrison Ford Crohn's disease truther. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of not being a team player, in the opposite direction, much like uh, most female characters at the time, Diane, going back to the comic, is the one who actually puts herself in danger all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Emmett just like shows up at the end and says his weird tagline and then knocks people out. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of it is about her just sort of going for it. And I like that. Yeah. I, you know what? Her character would have been much more fascinating than Wesley's as like a central character, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Like... Over the course of these 12 issues, the focus seems to switch away from Diane and that is to the book's detriment. Yeah. She's pretty clearly the viewpoint character in the first one. They sort of share page space in the second. And the third one is mostly Wesley. Yeah. That's and, like kind of feels on purpose. Yeah. And it's it's so much to its, like like you said, so much to its detriment. That third, that third uh, storyline really sucks ass for a lot of reasons. Say, before and, we uh, move on to uh, the Chinatown bit, uh, the lettering in this, did it give I, any, either of you a real hard time on the eyes? Oh, yeah. Um, I thought her name was This Diane has been a thing with Matt Wagner for me. Like, her, yeah. Batman versus uh, Grendel was the first Matt Wagner comic I read. And there is so much cursive dot, uh, description boxes in that one. And it is written in such a, a, a tiny hand. It is a pain in the ass. Thankfully, this has fewer bits of cursive. But the bits but of still, cursive are unreadable. The type is... And, like, even the regular uh, text is weirdly small. I'm at the age where if I see that there's, like, a big chunk of, like, a comic that has, like, illegible cursive, I just accept that I'm not going to know what that said. I'm just like, well, you know what? I'm not going to try. Fuck it. And that's what I did I here. did not make that decision. I had to, like take off my glasses and squint at my phone, reading this at 5 a.m. in between episodes of Random Acts of Flyness. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not, I wasn't going to hurt myself for Wesley Dodds. <laughs> I am not Dion. Yeah, they, they, maybe because it's only three stories, but I, I don't get what she sees in him. Because she's clearly thinks he, like he's absolutely fascinating because, you know, unlike like her male friends who are all frivolous and be shopping, seems to like believe in something but he mostly just doesn't like greed yeah ostentatious He's a displays manic of pixie wealth. gas boy <laughs> oh i just realized i just realized who i think he looks like he looks like um uh, and john i don't know if you're gonna know this i'll i'll uh post a picture of him in the chat uh he looks like the wojack that says yes honey <laughs> I'll post something more. <laughs> I just like that. That's that clicked in my head. I'm like, oh, that's him. Oh my god. Oh god. I'm sorry to harp on uh, this. But I'm I would sorry. say, like, specifically the Noam Chomsky version. Yes. I'm so sorry to ugly Wesley Dodds is young Chomsky. If if Wesley Dodds had anything close to a personality, I'd feel bad about doing this. But he's just like a he's just like a like a just a an overripe banana of a man, you know, just a <laughs> just a real like bottom of bottom of the container prune. Oh, I, I prune. love how much these artists love putting lines on the face of a guy who was supposed to be maybe thirty. Yeah, I thought, like, is he, like, 50 or something? Is he, I think, you know what? I think a little piece of subtext that they never let in is that he has Benjamin Button disease. 
and that he's like 17. <laughs> That's progeria. He's raging very rapidly. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's what I said before. Like, I couldn't tell, like, based on context clues, he was supposed to be, like, a few years out of college. But, like, in the second arc, he's drawn like he's 50. Yeah. Uh, he even does, like, college was the mean thing. streets of, quote, unquote, the Orient. <laughs> oh, God. The Orient, he means Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. All right, you are right. right with that it, one, Shane. Right, yeah, old Akira, old man, baby. Uh, oh, God. So they, uh, they uncover the tarantula. I can't believe we're even going through this. They uncover the tarantula, which is just the mother the entire time, because of insurance. Well, insurance, the tarantula inheritance. was the kid. The, the, the son of the gangster was dressing in the uh, black skinhead, black clan hood uniform from the Kanye West video for some reason. And the mother was wearing that long black veil. So it, it was, was a tandem attempt, effort. There was an attempt to throw you off the scent because the mother like slips into Yiddish a few times. You're supposed to think like, well, if they're Jewish, they can't be clan members. I'm just like, this is very confused writing. I, I, I'm not even sure they were supposed to be clan members. I just, I, 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 it was a black robe, so maybe it, they were in the anti-clan? They were Antifa. <laughs> oh. Uh, no, they're... Uh... That's why they were kidnapping the rich women. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're just going for, like, a, a general, like... I, I think they were just going for, like, a general executioner hood, but it really does look like the clan hood. Yeah. There's just a lot of confusing mixed messages, which really really peak in the second arc which is maybe you're the real racist <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a, a narration box that says that almost explicitly who was the real racist here <laughs> <laughs> no the second one again not only taking place in a chinatown that by 1938 would be like 30 years out of date if they're talking about like opium dens and tongs like that's what people in their 30s the 30s grew up hearing about about like the new york of the 1870s yeah that is not a contemporary industrial capitalist thing it, it was basically just like the chinatown of deadwood but like with more <laughs> electric lights can I, can I just... it, it had that real like that chinatown episode of sherlock feeling you're just like no stop <laughs> the um the episode of deadwood where uh, Wu is trying to get to um, try to try to talk to uh, Ian McShane, and he's trying to talk to uh, Dan Doherty to get to him, and he just keeps screaming the phrase "cocksucker" because that's the only word he can say to him. And Dan is just like, "I, I don't understand, Wu. I'm not as smart as him." <laughs> oh God. God, As I will go into later, my stance on Prestige TV is it's all bad, asterisk, except like five shows I like, and those change by the month. And Deadwood is like a pretty solid member of that five show club. Oh, Deadwood made the, um, Deadwood made my, uh, my S ranking in my, when I ranked all the HBO shows. Deadwood is a good boy. That's a good show. So the second arc, The Face, is about a series of like grisly assassinations in New York's Chinatown that Diane just inserts herself into because she used to date like a prominent member of the Chinese-American business community, let's say. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, they, they spar over maybe being anti-racist is the real racism. I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. And they never accurately explained that the guy... I like that they communicate, like, the assassinations through the newspaper. Like, that's an old-school spy thing. Like, people were still doing that until, like, the 90s. Yeah. My, my thing with the last two arcs in this comic is that they fall into a bit where, like, the first one, the bad guy is, like, a, an actual guy with, like, an actual motive. The other two, it's just like, oh, here's a fucked up person. Yes. You don't know who they are. They don't matter. They're just the monster this time. You know, the the superhuman disguise artist. He's just called Face, and he likes to murder prostitutes. Why? That was very confusing. Yeah, like... The, the bit where he says his name, and apparently we're supposed to infer that, oh, it's a Chinese name that translates to face. No, it, it's just confusing, and he refers to himself in the third person, or as a collective, which is not good at... I, I basically couldn't follow this art. <laughs> I just want to say that right now. Yeah, this, um, I'm gonna... Just cards on the table. I've read, I read this comic when I was, like, 15 and jonesing for Sandman content. Um... And, you know, I did my time and read this, then I kind of just glanced over this to just get the very basics of it. Like, all right, I, I, I don't need to go through the racism again twice in my life. The only it, the comic just this... kind of throws up his hands and says about the face, I guess he's the Joker, baby. <laughs> yeah, I get... and yeah, even like at the end of the story, like the racist cops, but I repeat myself, sort of go like well they should why do we bother with crimes in their communities just like okay then why are we telling this story Mm -hmm. are we supposed to be getting out of this other than the fact that you found a semi-competent artist this time i wish we had a federal bureau of investigation so we could use their crime stats yeah moving on moving on to the worst of all possible worlds yeah this one fucking sucks Oh, this God. One. So, like, I like the first one compared to this. Like, I, the first one, there's a lot to enjoy. This one is, there's nothing. There's nothing to enjoy here. It is offensive on all levels. It's a bad story. It's unnecessarily sexually violent. It looks like dog shit. Um, it's bad. It's bad, Yeah, guys. I... It has an unsatisfying yeah, conclusion. Yeah, this one... Yeah, the art on this one is R.G. Taylor, and I would like to apologize to John Watkins like, for c- any uh, complaints I may have had about his art in the Chinatown arc, because the art in the Brute arc is much worse. Like, can they even claim, like, I'm asking your expertise here, John, um, can they claim that this is, like, a popular type of story from this era? Because the first two ones were very much like like those were popular story types of the 30s i'm imagining they're like ellery queen stories yeah um i i uh, the thing is, is like there... pulp genres are all like really broad and a lot of times this is something writers would do a lot especially during the heyday of the magazine era and the pulps is that after about five years you just rewrite it and update the references mm-hmm. um in fact when i was going through f scott fitzgerald's notebooks i noted how much he made for story it was what i was being paid years later wow oh so yeah um movies did not kill magazines radio did not kill magazines it was television that killed magazines uh because like just one more thing to hate television for yeah 
I hate that the social theorists of the 60s were right and TV really did rot their kids' brains. Yeah, they should <laughs> like they should they shouldn't have been right with the information that they had, but they totally were. And um so like this does have the feeling of one of those like pop out filler stories that like you'd find in uh well Alfred Hitchcock's mystery magazine would have been a couple of years later, but one of those, Black Hat, that was a big one. It was just like we need something to go to print, and ever since like the murders of the Rue Morgue, oh, a monster did it has been a pretty popular hack ending. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just I couldn't even tell what the brute was supposed to be. It was so like poorly conveyed visually, and and there, and there's the unnecessary stuff with the dog. yeah, <laughs> and I don't like that they like the rapist character, the big speech about how landlords are bad. I mean, come on, yeah. yeah. So, like, they kind of, I feel like they go visually for something similar to, like, you know, the the character in um, Batman's Long Halloween, you know, like, um, the Falcone's, like, niece or daughter or something who's, like, seven feet tall and, like, a very strong, like, like, hulking, like, they kind of go for that, but, like, so much, like, more offensive and terrible. Yeah. And, oh, speaking of, again, Batman comparisons... Every time Hobbs is using his Sandman voice, I'm just hearing the Bane voice in my head. <laughs> <laughs> he somehow, like, it somehow becomes like deeper, but even more affected. Yes. You merely adopted the dream. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't wake up until I was already a man, and by then God the sun was blinding. Uh, and like, there's not much to say here. They don't really introduce any new. Dobbs lore. No Dobbs drops. Yeah. And Diane doesn't have much to do, and she's the best. And yeah, and this and so I want to point out boxing was outlawed in New York by then. Really? I don't remember if they expressly say it's an underground boxing ring. Mm-hmm. But that would not have been above board legal. Yeah. Yeah, because uh what is it like uh like boxing and MMA have been illegal in New York City, like up until very recently, right? No, it's like partly it was like a public mores thing and partly it was I got this is the one thing I got in trouble with my first book, Scarlet Takes Manhattan, because I had like the central plot be a boxing ring. And everyone pointed out to me in 1890, that was literally illegal. (laughs) (laughs) And I just went, it's a cartoon. I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) That was 20 year old me. 36 year old me is now like, I'm sorry, I've created I found I found an exception in the bylaws of the New York State Charter for 1925. (laughs) And I'm not sure which is worse. Like, they're both bad thoughts to have. Yeah. Both entirely lawyering different lawyering 80-year-old laws. Yeah. There's this very certain type of person who would, who would well actually a cartoon about, like, om- like over 100-year-old, like, boxing laws. It's a very certain type of person, and I'm just picturing... They tend to like, read comics, yeah. I'm picturing <laughs> Wesley Dodds. <laughs> Oh god, every time I write historical fiction now, I'm just gonna have the head of Wesley Dobbs floating over me. <laughs> oh! Oh my god, I, I just Gosling? realized! Wesley Dobbs looks like Rivers Cuomo. Oh! Oh, that sucks. <laughs> that sucks to hear. <laughs> got a casting announcement. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh. I could very well see them trying to make a movie out of this in, like, 92 to capitalize on, like, 
Batman Returns popularity. They did. It was called Darkman. Oh, yeah. man, Darkman kicks ass. Like, I actually thought Darkman was like a 1930s property that was like just revived because it like it felt so much like it was from that era. But no, it's an entirely original invention. Yeah, it really nails it. And you know, this comic, to a certain point, nails a lot of the same genre conventions, but... It, it nails too I, many of them and picks the wrong too, ones. I, I, it's also one of those things where, it's like, if this is your type of thing, you've already seen an example of this a hundred times over. Like, I know exactly what they're referencing every time they do it. Honestly, just, just read The Spirit, Will Eisner's old books. Like, mm-hmm. they'll get you, like, 90% of the way there. And you don't have to any, have any shoehorned in sexual assaults. Yeah, those old Will Eisner spirits really hold up. Uh, The Darwin Cook spirits, and to a certain extent the Sergio Aragones bit, those are also very good. Yeah, pour one out for Darwin. If this kind of thing is your thing, there are many... Oh, I can't talk today. There are much better examples of it, both contemporary and from the period. And just again, like, again, as I keep saying, like just read Ellery Queen. Like that yeah. is literally a fuss bot, like fancy lad who also like solves crimes in New York City in the 30s. I just so you know, I'm going to be picking your brain for recommendations of things to read because now I this is all I want to read is stuff like that. So My I think the consensus check. here <laughs> is if you specifically want, if you specifically want a version of a James Elroy novel starring Rivers Cuomo, then read Sandman Mystery Theater, the first four issues. And also, if you want that, go directly to jail. <laughs> I was going to say, if you want that, but you want it to be slightly more competently done, just watch the um, adaptation of uh, The Black Dahlia, which doesn't follow the book at all but is really interesting as like a meditation on what film noir is and also has like an insane incestuous rich family mm-hmm. that's oh. the uh, brian de palma version yeah also femme fatale so by de palma oh i wanted to bring this up and now that i know like just yeah i definitely want to bring this up just last night this is not gonna be my vibe check because it's all right um but i watched uh the new big hbo miniseries first episode perry mason and I was wondering, oh. do you have any thoughts on that? I haven't seen it yet. I was going to wait until like a thousand years old. I can't do week to week television. Yeah. I was going to wait until I need my stories, but I don't want to wait for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that on the front page of HBO Max. And I remembered that you'd sent me a DM about uh, that Matthew guy. And I thought that that was a TikTok teen because I did not recall the name. So <laughs> I, I assumed that you would have been watching it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was watching it last night. Um, I I don't know. Uh, it, it's all right. It looks really pretty. It looks really pretty. I like that aesthetic. I love that style of, like, you know, early 30s, late 20s kind of stuff. Um, love it's about that. a defense attorney, which is a nice change of pace from a lot of uh, stuff about cops that's popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, this is when he's a um, private investigator, but it still is very anti-cop. So, like, yeah, it's very good. I always say I want I want more like these procedurals that are actually about like public defenders. Nice that's change. All, that's all I want. I, that's like why is that not a thing? I really wish more Phoenix Wright games were available because that is like what I want out of like a detective style game. Just like you're the defense attorney trying to clear someone's name. Yeah, like that's like 
probably one of the most socially good jobs you can have, like, in that set. Like, why is that not, like, much more of an entire genre of television? Because I would love that I, just, like, a week-to-week thing. Of they don't carry guns, that's why. Yeah. I, I was recently uh, listening to the Copaganda episode of Struggle Session, and they actually went into this about, like, uh, Dick Wolf, like, actually said, like, you know, before Law & Order, a lot of procedural television was about defense attorneys, but, you know, my Law & Order type procedurals, they changed the game. They turned it from DAs to so, cops. So, like... So, like, for all things, we can blame Dick Wolf for ruining everything. Like, in this... <laughs> also, like, in the 50s, you had, like, the literal FBI and the LAPD consulting on uh, what would eventually become, like, the format for police procedurals to make sure that, you know, the criminal is always bad, the cops were always good, and it was essentially, like, yeah, the start of propaganda. Mm. Minor subplot in the movie LA Confident. Yeah. Yeah, you did have, like, shows like literally the FBI, like which Rick Dalton guest starred on, but, like, you also had <laughs> The Defenders, a, a literal public defender procedural. So you had at least some balance there, whereas now you kind of don't have that. It's like, what literally, was the, literally all cops. What was, like, the last major, like, lawyer show? Was it Boston Legal? The Good Wife. The Good Wife. Okay, yes. Also, I, I will say this. I only watched it, I only watched it because my mom really liked it because it was related, related to her work. All the cops on that show... Miss shit. <laughs> Very refreshing. It's like extremely written by a lawyer show, but it's extremely l- written by like ex defense lawyers who hate cops. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay, I'll give them that. I'm I'm now going to watch this. I've I've it's always been. You, you ever just have a show that you know exists, but you literally know nothing about it? It's that from. So now I know. Is, is the Good Wife the show with like the successor series, The Good Fight? that has like musical numbers by Jonathan Colton. Yeah, it's 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 very much if your favorite Pure resistor wine mom made a show. Oh no. Yeah, but my mom know, loves they... it and she is that type of person. Yeah, it's tolerable. Yeah, I I would love just like a brainless like Dick Wolf style procedural but just for public defense. I I get I was angry at it at first, but now I've turned around on Matt Chrisman's take that he wishes, like, um, Better Call Saul was just, like, a shaggy procedural about that instead of being, like, a prestige TV show. Yeah, I... I get it. Honestly, I do get it. This past season has really turned me on, like, the drama sections of Better Call Saul because, oh my god, oh my god, my story... I'm getting tired of prestige TV. I just want some, like, TV-ass TV. Speaking of, do we want to go into our vibe checks? Because I have a prestige TV recommendation that is not bad. Yeah, I'm officially done talking about this comic. Um, Anyway, do we want to give our last words on this comic before we move on to the vibe check? Sure. Uh, It's bad, and I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, it is extremely disappointing. Like, the first four issues, I would say, are, like, a solid 7 out of 10, and it just drops in each subsequent arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I feel like a lot of people are going to come to this comic for either two reasons. Number one, if you're jonesing for more Vertigo Sandman content after reading all of the Sandman and all of, like, the more official spinoffs with, like, actual, like, Sandman characters, I feel like you're going to end up here. And if you're that kind of fan, 
this ain't going to do much for you. It's, it, it's honestly not. Um, the other type of person who would be into this is like a um, like a 1930s pulp pervert. Uh, and I, I think the first four issues would do it for you. But if you have a conscious, I don't think the next the next uh, eight will. So there's also so much more pulp pervert material out there for you. You don't need this. This is real yeah. licking the Ziploc bag the cocaine came in. That is completely <laughs> accurate. Yeah, especially from Matt Wagner, like the Grendel series is much better at being like a sort of at least in the part that is supposed to be like a, a weird sort of pulp riff it goes into some more sci-fi places later but like the parts of that that are supposed to be a pulp riff are a very fun pulp riff mm-hmm. i just go read grendel yeah go read that yeah go read uh, get Will a magnifying spirit get a magnifying glass and read uh batman grendel because you're gonna need it for all the narrative boxes uh but anyway this... we were talking about go ahead i'm gonna say just in the spirit of the popular uprising can i get a vibe check all right. Uh, we were talking about <laughs> Prestige TV, and uh, my opinion on Prestige TV is it all sucks, asterisk, except for, like, five shows that I like. And one of the new additions to that, like, five or ten shows that I hold at a distance from the rest of Prestige TV is Random Acts of Flyness, the uh, six-episode sort of... I. I would say sketch comedy, but that's mainly only applicable to, like, the first episode. It's much more abstract than sketch comedy would imply for the rest of them. The sixth episode is, like, a long-form sort of, like, sci-fi digression that I'm not Mm. entirely sure I understand. But it's, like, a weird multimedia collage series mixing, like, sketch stuff, like, documentary stuff like sort of video essay type like stuff it's hard to describe it because it doesn't feel like anything else i've ever seen like Mm -hmm. on a formal level the only thing i could say even resembles it is a funeral display of roses funeral parade of roses rather this uh japanese film from the 60s that sort of follows this like trans it's like this sort of collage film about trans life in japan in the 60s it is mm-hmm. it is out there. It is amazing. And Random Act of Flyness is, I would say, the closest thing I've seen to something that moves like that. Or like F for Fake. F for Fake is not oh. quite as out there in terms of its structure as Random Act of Flyness or Funeral Parade of Roses. But its approach to the sort of essay documentary form is close. So I've... I've described F for Fake in the past as the visual experience, like a movie watching experience that's very similar to like being on one of those really shaky, rickety roller coasters at like a not up to code like carnival or like amusement park where just like it's not guaranteed that you're going to be safe, but it's fucking like an insane ride. Is this does this have that kind of feeling that F for Fake has? A bit. Yeah, I would say this is like the intersection of Adult Swim 3AM show and video art exhibit at the MoMA. It's like where those two planes meet. Ooh, I'm uh, between last night and right now, you've thoroughly sold me on the show. I'm going to be watching it tonight. It is, it's phenomenal. 
Uh, it's by Terrence Nance, who also made uh, An Oversimplification of Her Beauty, which is a movie I've been meaning to watch for, like, maybe a decade now. But, like, mm-hmm. it is animation mixed with documentary mixed with, uh, like, comedic skit. It is... It's like nothing else I've ever seen. And that, in itself, is a recommendation. Yeah, fuck. I have nothing to add about that. That that owns. I, I really want to watch this. I would also like to add... Uh, sub-recommendations for the Jeanette Winterson memoir Why Be Normal... Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. Mm-hmm. I read it, like, in one streak overnight, and it was... I saw you read that on Goodreads, Heartbreaking. Yeah. It's it's beautiful. Um, it's about, like, being raised in a abusive Christian household in the north of England, and it... I don't know if it's gonna hit you the same way it hit me, but it, it it's, it's good. I yeah. love the way her... Her writing is very plain spoken, but also very profound. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've got just like a whole thread of just like excerpts from the book that I just had to be like, oh man, I got to screenshot that. Um, and I would I... also like to recommend Rave.DJ. That is like, I'm going to be real. This has been a really stressful time on like four or five fronts. Like COVID's been getting worse. There's been a whole lot of innocent people being brutalized by the police. Uh, wrestling is on fire, both because of multiple like sexual predators being revealed and also uh, massive COVID outbreaks. Like WWE had more positive COVID cases than Tokyo. <laughs> and yeah. like, one of the few, and also like the something awful forums were in limbo for like a day or two, because uh, low tax is also a piece of shit. Yeah. The only respite in this maelstrom of emotion is using rave.dj to make a uh, mashup of a 911 Truth BG's parody in Uptown Funk and send it to Shane. That one in particular works <laughs> way too well, but that like worked it, too well. It it is amazing. It's like a machine learning mashup bot this has um been like the highlight of my month one of the highlights of my month is uh every night just us just texting each other back and forth um different rave.dj hell creations um some of that caramel dancing mixed with black skinhead probably a, a great one yeah um my favorite i've got a couple favorites of mine personally i really love um the beautiful stranger slash uh, bloodhound gang mix up <laughs> that has a lot of like Austin powers. Cause beautiful stranger <laughs> is the lead single on the Austin powers, the spy who shagged me playlist, the Madonna song, beautiful stranger. And the music video is filled with Austin powers clips, uh, or- both original <laughs> and from the movie. Um, and it's mixing with the bad touch by the bloodhound gang, which is, you know, need I say more about that song in that video, you know, the monkeys, you know, jumping around, humping things. Yeah. Uh, it was beautiful. It really combined in a beautiful way. And there is a couple of other ones that are just a weirdly good beats. Like um, my fiance, my fiance saw how much fun we were having and she wanted to do one. And the first one she did knocked it out of the fucking park. She did. um, What was it? Uh, Achy breaky heart. And, oh, uh, and uh, psycho, psycho killer psycho killer from the talking heads and it should not have worked as well as it did but it worked 
like I would listen to that. That like when when this works, it's like a decent girl talk song, you know? Like it's a decent yeah, song I, you would download on LimeWire in two thousand six. A, a good mashup like breaks your brain a little bit. Like mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like it shouldn't work, but it works. And like my favorite one that I did is like the RoboCop theme for the Game Boy that you may remember from the oh. YouTube sensation Dilbert 3 mixed God. with Revolution Lover. Yes. Yes, that one is so good. Oh, uh. fuck. Okay, we got to talk about this. The one that I did, which was the scene of the Joker where the Joker dances on the stairs. Oh, God. Set, you know, like <laughs> the famous Joker stair scene. Like no like fake audio, just the original audio from the movie. And then splicing that with LMFAO's Party Rock Anthem. And it literally... <laughs> I'm going to post this on the page. It visually just turned into just this beautiful, like, combination of the two where, like, Joker dancing on the stairs was overlaid with the LMFAO, like, famous dance that they do. It was a beautiful nightmare. A beautiful, hideous nightmare. And I loved every second of it. Uh, it was wonderful. You're party rocking. People are dying, and you're party rocking. I am, and I'm. I'm tired of pretending it's not. <laughs> oh, I'm tired God. of pretending that party rock is not in the house tonight. You know what you. You know what you get when you take somebody who knows very well that the song is called the part. The song goes, "Party rock is." Not party, but instead they say party rockers. You get what you fucking deserve. <laughs> oh. oh, you know what? A Joker owns. I love the Joker. That's a good. <laughs> it's it's it, the best. It was it was pr- okay. It was the last great shit post fuel me- movie. I was gonna say, is that one of the? Is that gonna go in the annals of great meme movies? Of like, is that going to go in the annals of like snakes on a plane and like shit like that that just became great memes? Oh, it might well be. Yeah. Um. So, uh, should I go next for a vibe check? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my vibe check. Um. So it was hard to decide what my vibe check was going to be. So I have a, a vibe check, and then I have another sub vibe check. Um. My first vibe check is Costco. I. Grew up in a house where we would only occasionally get Costco memberships if, like, a family friend or something, somebody got a Costco membership and, like, gave us, like, their secondary card for a little bit. And Costco was always, like, it was always, like, going to, to like, Six Flags for us, you know? It was a forbidden <laughs> store. It was a forbidden store that we don't ever get to go to. But, like, once every year, once every two years or so, we'd be able to go and just get a ton of shit. And finally, um, me and, you know, I am in a financial place where I'm like, you know what? It's time for me to get my own Costco card. And I got one. And I've gone shopping there a few times. Today was the first day I went shopping alone at Costco, which was just, this is the first time I've ever done that in my life. And it was an insane experience. Just thinking like, I am like, like walking through those big, like, like big factory doors that they have big warehouse doors it's like them going through the doors in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to the big like candy land area just like (laughs) come with me and you'll see be 
In a world of rotisserie chickens. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh. It's a beautiful experience going going there. And um, my secondary vibe check, um, this one's not as big as getting going to Costco. This one's nowhere near as big. Um, I My secondary vibe check is uh, proposing. It is having um, having a fiance. It is getting engaged, which is so- something I did. Boggers. Boggers, yes. Uh, the famous uh, mature listeners tweet about me being me proposing and Neil responding with pog champ. <laughs> which, uh, for context, I posted that on Facebook. I posted a picture of right after I proposed to my fiance of, you know, like her with the ring on. And I was just getting, like, a ton of, you know, family, friends, friends, stuff like that. Just giving the customary, like, congratulations, we love you both. Oh, my God. Oh, God, this is great. And then just suddenly I get a response Congratulations. 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 Thanks, guys. Yeah, I get get a comment from Neil that just says poggers. And I just I lose my fucking mind at that. I just think that's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. And then later that night, uh, you sent me a meme saying, "I'm sorry, I said Pog Champ after you got proposed. It's not my fault." <laughs> and then I sent you the one with Snitsky. Gene Snitsky, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, Costco is the most important. I actually, I got the Costco membership because I wanted to buy, like, steaks. And they have a good uh, deal on steaks. I wanted to buy steaks for the night that I proposed because I wanted to make a nice dinner. Oh, I I thought you were going to say you got a Costco membership so you could buy the engagement ring at Costco. (laughs) Because I know Sam's Club has a jewelry section. They do. I was looking. That's one that's in my area. Oh, God. I no, I no, I did not. I did not buy the ring at Costco the day of. <laughs> no, no, I, I went to the day of proposing so that I could go get some steaks and some things for dinner, and it was you good. You know, the rule of buying a ring is that it should cost two months Costco membership. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, Costco and then being engaged in order of, you know, important, most to leave. All right. And John, would you like to give your vibe check? Oh, um, if everyone's doing you, uh, my minor vibe check is that I'm really appreciating everybody rewatching Hannibal because it's always fun to watch someone watch that series for the first time. It's like, settle in, boys. It's going to get weird. That was uh, that was my fiance a few <laughs> ago. She is a huge, just like not only just a Hannibal fan, but like big fan of like the greater like Hannibal series, like the books, the movies, all that stuff. So oh, like, I, I've always described it as like the most expensive fanfic ever made. Oh yeah, it oh, is. I I thought you were gonna say that she was a big like Brian Fuller head. Oh, she is absolutely. She is a big Brian Fuller head, very big. Thank- um. Thank God that I thought twice before saying that, because I was sure that Brian Singer was the name, but then I thought twice, and I was like, nope. No, the good Brian. Do not get those mixed up. (laughs) No, uh, Hannibal owns. Hannibal fucking owns. Speaking of Brian Fuller, I recently uh, finally finished Pushing Daisies, 
because uh-huh. I had both seasons on Blu-ray, but like since the TV show never finished airing, I had never seen like the actual finale. So like I started watching it with my mom, and we finally got to the ending. And like, not only does it end on a really high note by having Wendy Malick show up, it has like a a, a nice bit of closure, which is mm-hmm. you know more than I expected. It's more than you'll ever get for with any and other. And then we Brian started Fuller watching show. Dead Like Me. <laughs> you want to know what's not good? Dead Like Dead Me. Like... <laughs> Brian Fuller. Uh... Brian Fuller can't finish a show, can he? Sometimes I he wish can't he even... had started Dead Like Me. Sometimes he can't even start the show. Like with uh, Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> Hannibal ends on a... I think when you bring Susie Sue in to record a new song for your finale, you've officially ended it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. Th- that was a nice touch. Yeah. yeah. And almost entirely because like he's actually good friends with the De Laurentiis family who owns the Hannibal property. Mm-hmm. They have enough muscle to swing around. But my real vibe check, and this is entirely coincidental, is I've been getting back into... And unrelated to the Sandman Mystery Theater, pop culture of the 1930s. And one of the really fun things you can do is look up old episodes of the radio series Suspense. Uh, They're very similar in tone to these like pulp detective stories. Uh, They're old radio dramas. And the big thing about them is that they often had really big at the time stars on them, but because the radio... Radio rules for like content were a lot looser than uh, film. You get to hear like Judy Garland cussing. Whoa, <laughs> shit! And I really recommend like the White Rose Murders that has Mary Astor in it. Uh, the drive-in with Judy Garland is like just her being stalked for forty-five minutes. It's really good. Um, and they're like all places like you if know you look I up prefer? like top ten episodes of Suspense. I have to say, I prefer the last drive-in with Judy Garland, where she introduces a horror movie from the 1980s. Neil? <laughs> Neil, we have a guest, alright? <laughs> Neil, we have a... We only have a recognize ge- the authority of Elvira. <laughs> Neil, we have a guest who has nearly 10,000 followers. You can't be pulling this shit. <laughs> Behave! <laughs> Now I'm just imagining you as a... I know it's not Judy Garland, it's from Mommy Dearest. Oh, no. Wire hanger. Yeah, that scene, but I'm trying to remember the actress. Faye Dunaway. I mean, Faye Dunaway or or, uh, who she's playing, Joan Crawford. Crawford. Joan Crawford, yeah. Yeah. You know what's crazy? You know what's crazy about Mommy Dearest? I like... People say that movie's, like, really kitschy. And, like, I guess it is, but, like, I don't know. Like, as somebody who's known, like fucking people who actually act like that like that felt real in a way that i feel like like a lot of people can't appreciate but on the hollywood royalty edition of mommy dearest god i am bringing all my dirty laundry out uh they have john waters on to do a guest commentary and he says he has never watched the movie he is watching the movie for the very first time and like you can hear him lighting cigarettes and drinking a martini Throughout the entire movie, he's saying, like, I don't think this is campy. I don't think this is kitsch. I think this is a really strong performance. This is a really good movie. And then he gets to the Christina Bring Me an Axe sequence. You can hear him take a big drag off his cigarette and go, okay, that was over. What is this? I need to I need to experience whatever this is immediately. It was the Hollywood Royalty edition, DVD edition of Mommy Dearest. They have John Waters to do basically, yeah, a podcast about it. Oh my a Twitch, god! Like, thing. That fucking owns. 
I need to watch that. You know, and it's like my, my favorite movie commentaries always fall into because I listen to a lot of them. Um, always fall into two categories. One, people like just clearly slowly getting drunker and drunker through the course of the recording. There are a lot of those. Mm. And <laughs> two, trash talking. Yes. As, and like my the... favorite subcategory of that first category is the hot fuzz commentary with uh, Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino, where you can basically just hear Quentin just speeding up as it goes <laughs> through the movie. And, wow, like you can tell that problem? like there's yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but like, it, know... it's just them just chatting about stuff that has barely anything to do with the movie, just going off on massive tangents about like British crime movies from the seventies. That and is like, such a... you know, it's just guys being dudes. Dudes rock, you know. Didn't Fiona like... Apple say she broke up with um, director Anderson because, like, yeah, there was just one too many parties with him and Tarantino doing too much coke. I've so I, like... I get why she would break up with him over that, but also like that's kind of my dream. Yeah, what she described, like, I get it. Very. Very in theory, I get it, but in practice, that's my fucking like literally what you said, like hanging out with the two of them, just talking about like obscure seventies media, is my literal dream. The best of the trash talking of genre is Gone Girl because the director just uh, mocks an Affleck the entire time. Oh, for the names. fucking for the hat shit, right? And he's just like, yeah, it was difficult to shoot this because he's incredibly out of shape. Because, oh, <laughs> like, so, like, it wasn't Ben Affleck originally. It was supposed to be, like, John Hamm in that role, right? Like, or something. Like, John Hamm was, like, hard going for that role, but it went to Ben Affleck. I feel like yeah, I. Oh, heard... speaking of John Hamm, John Hamm is in the first episode of Random Acts of Flyness in a, oh. a fantastic sketch. There we go. Sold. I'm I'm a madman. I'm, I'm a slut for madmen, so this is, is all I need. In that Hamaconda. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think DVD uh, commentaries are such a dying lost art that like I really don't know why like streaming services will not have commentaries like for shows that will never make it to DVD like why not just throw a fucking commentary up like that is yeah, it I seems miss- like the the ultimate value add like if you if you want to like add more value to a, a, a streaming service like oh you get this commentary that's only ever going to be on the streaming service mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a sad thing that's gone the way of the dodo because of the fucking like march of you know electronic progress like you, the you DVD know what service special is really good gone. about commentaries you oh, know yeah. what service is really good about those criterion channel baby Criterion Channel is the best thing in the world. I thank you every every single day. I go on your, I go like pull up your Twitter, and I pull up your picture and I give it a kiss on the forehead for giving me the Criterion Channel every day. <laughs> I'm so happy that I have that in my life. Uh, I that that's even better now that mine is the smiling uh, <laughs> woman from Grizzly Man. Yes. Oh God! I when I found out what that picture was, I was so ash- I was so ashamed of you. I was so just <laughs> disappointed in you. Like that is an intensely upsetting scene. Is it worse than Christopher Moltisanti wearing an Ahigo T-shirt? I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> that man, that woman is realizing 
that the grizzly man has just been brutally murdered by a bear. That's fair. But anyway, John, where can we find you online? John? Anyway, while we're waiting for John, Shane, where can we find you online? Uh, You can find me at the Shane Blep. I've been tweeting a lot of tier lists lately. Been having some fun with that. Um, I was working on a tier list for candy earlier today that I haven't posted yet. I haven't finished it yet. Um, so yeah, I, I gotta. I that should be up by later tonight. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter at f u c k i n a l p a m a r e. You can find my music at neiljacoby.bandcamp.com. I recently put up a uh, selection of uh, little things that I made using the Korg gadget for Switch. I, and uh, I, yeah. it's, a, it's a fun little gimmick. It's like a little synth. You can, like, it, it's like a little DAW for your Switch. And it is surprisingly <laughs> feature heavy for something that runs on a Nintendo Switch. Yeah, that owns. I love whenever you post stuff from that. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and watch me try to save the Pistons. We are currently in a either 8 to 22 or like. Maybe we won one of the games, so it may have been like nine wins to 21, but we're doing really badly. And I will routinely put up like 60 points, 70 points, and we will have like a 30-point differential. Mm-hmm. We recently got just fucking creamed by the Milwaukee Bucks, like 156 to 114. <laughs> It, it is what uh, it's your ugly, ugly character deserves. Truly. Uh, Rod Bob is trying. Whenever we you... have Eric Bledsoe, we have Blake Griffin, we have Willie Hernan Gomez, we Whenever have you... Isnaz Whenever you We have describe... all these guys that are trying their best. So, like, you told me his name. You've told me his name so many times. Whenever I think about it, I can never remember it, and my mind fills in. I don't know why. My mind fills in John John Bidet Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> so like the, the, the dead child. For for Roderick Bobbitt? Yeah, for Roderick Bobbitt, I always think John Bidet Ramsey. <laughs> oh. I think it's because my mind is trying to rem- also remember like oh, what is it? Uh, Elaine Bobbitt, but can't. So it fills in another <laughs> like noteworthy story of the same time. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh our guest had to uh drop out, but you can find him at, at L E A V I T T alone. And until next time, where we're gonna have to talk about Transmetropolitan and uh, uh Warren Ellis's pattern of abuse. Which ooh, it it hits heavier when you're reading Spider Jerusalem. Yeah. And the way that he treats women. Yep, yeah, it totally does. So until then, tailwinds. Tailwinds.